Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 000084 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And as we know, Radio City Docklands is on the home of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I pay my respects to any mob that are out there listening tonight. As a matter of fact, I pay my respects to all of you. But it's always important to remember that this was always and always will be Aboriginal land. On to uh, tonight's show, um, the Productivity Commission's report into overcoming Indigenous disadvantage was released last week. This is the eighth iteration of the report, and it shows while some improvements have been made, there is still quite a way to go. But as we um, go along looking at some of the key indicators, life expectancy, rates of imprisonment, and youth detention, family and community violence, et cetera, et cetera. Over time, we are actually gaining some clearer, clearer ideas on how to make some headway into improving outcomes in these areas. So we'll speak with the uh, with a productivity commissioner, Romley Mokak, about these matters shortly. Couldn't think of anyone better to talk to about these matters, as a matter of fact. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Lois Peeler, Many of you may know her as the original member of the Sapphires, but she is so much more than that. This past Sunday marked the 82nd anniversary of the Australian Aborigines League, led by William, Coopers, William Cooper, when they marched on the German consulate here in Collins Street to protest the treatment of the Jewish people of Europe in the wake of the Kristallnacht in 1938. The German consulate refused to receive the letter of condemnation from the League, but on Sunday, Angela Merkel's government finally apologised for not re- receiving the letter and not even reading the letter. And Annie Lois, as a Yorta Yorta elder, was happy to receive the apology on behalf of her people, so we'll speak to her about that and much more. Hers, like so many other Aboriginal women of her generation, is a remarkable story, so we'll be um, uh, kicking around uh, some of those themes and ideas and on her experience um, because there is much to learn from her. So stick around. As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via Twitter on uh, Mr. DT James. Now, I'm kicking tonight's um, uh, music fest off tonight with um, with, with, with Bob Dylan because I, I, I read this morning that um, he'd sold his entire catalogue to Universal Music for somewhere between $200 million and $400 million. That's just um, absolutely ridiculous. I've spent probably $200 $250 over a 20-year period buying each one of his songs. It just goes to show that uh, capitalism is out of control and people have more money than cents. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, last week, the Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage Report was released. The report, released every four years, measures the well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It measures where things have improved or not against 52 indicators across a range of areas, including governance, leadership and culture, early childhood, education, economic participation, health, home environment and safe and supportive communities. 
The report includes case studies on governance with a specific focus on identifying arrangements to support shared decision-making between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and Australian governments. To tell us how we are going against some of these key targets and headline indicators is Ron Mokak. Ron is a Dugon man and a member of the Uwura people. He was appointed a full-time commissioner with the Productivity Commission back in December 2018. Before that, he was joined, um, before joining the Lewitcher Institute, Ron was the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association for almost a decade. Earlier roles included um, substance use and manager of National Eye Health Program for the Australian Government's Office of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health. He was the first Aboriginal Policy Officer in the New South Wales Government and um, in short, he is basically another fantastic servant to the people that he has dedicated his whole life to improving outcomes for his mob. So I'm very pleased to say he's on the line now. Ron, thanks so much for uh, joining us here on the mission. Uh, thank you, Daniel, and um, for that very generous and warm welcome. Really good to be here today. Uh, look, the report comes out every four years and is considered the, the definitive report when it comes to measuring how we're going, when it comes to closing the gap and other key indicators. How are we tracking in 2020? Well, look, there, there have been some areas of improvement um, and, um, you know, areas, for instance, uh, around our kids getting a good start in life, early childhood development, for example, um, infant mortality, deaths, deaths from at an early age have gone down significantly. You know, mums and, and partners are getting a lot more antenatal care and therefore pregnancy outcomes uh, are much improved. Uh, there's some... Uh, in the education area, improvements, particularly when starting schools so in that preschool uh, period, as well as increases in people finishing year 12. Uh, but there are other areas, Daniel, that are very concerning, areas um, such as uh, the rates of our kids in out-of-home care, for example, mm. um, high levels of psychological distress amongst our mob. Um, so these sorts of things are very worrying, uh, very concerning, and the uh, the trajectories are not going in the direction that we would like to see them go. Yeah, there are a number of um, areas of, of, of deep concern that we'll um, get to shortly. Um, as time goes on, some of the targets and headline indicators are being met, and we're closing and we're getting a clear idea of what works and, and doesn't work over time. Um, it could be argued that we always knew, but. Um, um, Give me an example of, of what, what what works. What works when, when trying to deal with some of these issues within Aboriginal communities across the land? Look, there's, there are metrics. So there are numbers and data. And, you know, we we know as Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, that others have, have kind of viewed us through that lens, through those metrics, and often um, in in a, in a way uh, that frames us as, as the problem or, or uh, deficit, for example. But the, the things that really are very important and the things that I'd like to emphasise that we try to draw out of this report is um, the importance of, of decision-making um, and shared decision-making between governments and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, the critical issue of how decision-making can be shared and, and therefore getting to the guts of, um, you know, the, the power that sits within and between those relationships. The other that I'd emphasise is um, 
and going back to that often deficit discourse or the, or the negative narrative that often overlays the way that um, uh, people think about us and speak about us is the importance of looking at um, recognising the, the strengths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, and, and to, to build on that, um, um, not to think that, um, uh, as, as is often the case, you know, we're people that need to be, um, you know, built in our capabilities without actually having a look at what already exists, the strengths that exist amongst our world. It's really interesting, isn't it, Rom, that the the statistics show that um, technically we're a, we're a vulnerable cohort, but in reality you actually won't find a, a stronger uh, group of people and a group of people that are have the ability, the know-how and the knowledge to, to take care of our own destiny and govern ourselves. Well, that's, that's right. And, that's, you know, often um, when people talk about it, uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, They'll use things like vulnerable people without actually... So so they're they're framing us, they're locating us in in the context of um, that label of vulnerability, um, which which really um, denies a whole lot of um, things, particularly to our children. You know, we might experience disadvantage or we might experience vulnerability, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't define us, and we know that as Indigenous people, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now let's um, let's get to to some of the the more shocking, uh, I guess, elements of, of of the report. And one thing that um, you know was came out in the report is that the imprisonment rate had increased seventy two percent between two thousand and two thousand and nineteen. Um, it's good that we're making headway in terms of you know the the early childhood development, the um, some of the some of the the education um, statistics, um, employment is is going well, and yet we we have a increase of imprisonment of seventy two percent. That just seems um, it's hard to fathom how that can happen when so many other things are going right. I guess at the at the end of it. Rom, a lot of it's got to do with racism, systemic, interpersonal, or, or otherwise. Yeah, look, absolutely. This, this report, and I should remind listeners that the report isn't, um, you know, a report that that I've written as an Aboriginal person mm-hmm. as such. It's not come from an Aboriginal organisation. It's the report on government service provision. And there's a committee that oversees this report's production, the uh, and I, I convene that committee. But it consists of um, all all Australian governments, uh, as well as uh, coalition of peaks members. And without labouring the point, the, the the overarching committee consists of all Australian governments at the kind of central government level. So this is sort of treasury, prime minister, and cabinet equivalents. So the reports are an Australian, a collective Australian government, um, Australian governments, I should say, report. Um, and so, so, so this speaks very loudly and clearly about, um, you know, the, the, the accountabilities and the commitments that governments have made and how we track against that. So that's, I, I just wanted to locate yeah, this point. report squarely within that space. Yep. Um, and, and the timing of the report's critical as well because, you know, as many of your listeners would know, we've now uh, launched into another 10 years of a new agreement, the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. Again, 
a whole bunch of commitments um, by governments um, to improving outcomes. Um, so that's really important. So when we see these persistent and negative outcomes going in the wrong direction, um, as Aboriginal people, we are absolutely disheartened concerned and, and uh, traumatised in many respects because these are our, our people. Uh, but it's also we've got to keep very, very close attention, very close eye on the systemic factors that you mentioned, Daniel. And so yeah. when we, we look at uh, policy intentions and policy responses, there are some policies that just simply discriminate against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so if we look at, for instance, um, you know, bail laws, um, if our people are in, in living in insecure accommodation arrangements, much more difficult, if not impossible, to get bail. Um, so they end up in remand. Um, so we have these these sorts of things at play. Uh, similarly, with out-of-home care for our young people, you know, the substantiation rates haven't increased comparative to non-Indigenous people, but once people are in the system, you see the out-of-home care rates increase and child care and protection orders increase. So there's something going on there we, we also we also find I think Rom correct me if I'm wrong but there there is there does seem to be a pathway to out of home care into um, uh, detention um, uh, juvenile imprisonment and the like so there seems to be some sort of disconnect there or or some sort of prejudice um, I guess attitude that that sees these kids not only being removed from their families but then being removed into an out-of-home care setting and then from there into either remand or, or, or youth detention. So that's 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 something that, you know, I think we can identify and something that hopefully we can address. Yeah, so we've got to think about not just the pathways but the consequences of that and particularly uh, having our kids... Um, you know the the, the uh, rates of out of home care is the sort of data that you look at on the page. But we, when we think about um, what that means in terms of children not staying within their the things that that protect our kids and keep our kids strong, you know, within our our family structures, our kinship structures, um, being not only connected but grounded in their in their cultural space and cultural being cultural beings. Um, so these are the things that are lost um, and, and will carry forward intergenerationally. Um, so these are really, really critical policy issues. But more than that, you know, these, are, these are individuals' lives, families' lives and communities um, are impacted. Yeah, so like a you know a six week um, stint in, in youth detention or out of home care for a, for a twelve or a thirteen year old is in some ways a lifetime because the, the brain is so developmental at that point and um, the, the connections needed to, to not only your family but your culture is, is just so important. Um, you, 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 the, the commission has stated in the report that raising the, the level of um, the age of, sorry, criminal responsibility from the 10 to 14 would reduce the rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in the juvenile justice system by 15%. Um, I guess I'll ask you as a as a as a lifetime advocate now, Rom. Uh, are you confident that we can see some changes on the, in those laws around the various jurisdictions across the country? 
look, I'm, I'm, I'm less um, to comment on that, but more in terms of the report. Um, the, you know, the report shows that, that these rates um, are, are alarmingly high. Um, so it simply makes the point that if we were to increase the age, um, we would see an immediate decrease in the level of kids um, who are in detention. Uh, so I think that's a pretty compelling, um, pretty compelling finding. Mm. And um, you know, different jurisdictions will deal with this in different ways. Um, and I certainly, as we all have, uh, you know, our, our strong colleagues working in Change the Record um, and other other places, um, you know, really working hard to get this um, this this policy shift happen. Um, another thing that um, the the report just refers to, Rom, is the that um, something like a Macarada Commission that has been, um, you know, front and centre within the Uluru Statement from their heart would go some way to addressing some of these matters. Um, what 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 do you mean hmm. by that? Well, the report. Uh in, in thinking or in looking at the common characteristics um, of approaches that are successful, so these are the kind of the things that work, you know, I'll circle back to that decision-making point. Shared decision-making is critical. This gets to the nub of how power is transacted or not between Aboriginal people and governments. Um, addressing those laws, the, the, the policies that operate to, to the detriment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So... You know, I mentioned earlier um, bail laws, for example, but also this this issue of addressing racism and discrimination. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's not surprisingly that one third of our people carry high to very high levels of psychological distress, and there could be many factors. I'm, you know, I don't want to sort of skate over this because people live in pretty difficult circumstances on a whole range of issues. But racism and discrimination, um, as we know, as Indigenous people, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Daniel, is is a part of our every everyday life, really. Mm. Um, so the issues that are systemic here uh, uh, are certainly highlighted in this report as issues that need to be addressed in order for there to be better outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In terms of the Makarata Commission, um, Essentially, what the report is saying is that in order for the Australian community um, to understand how these structural barriers operate, um, as well as racism and discrimination, there needs to be a knowledge sharing and education process. Um, so that in whatever form that is, you know, we, we talk about that as blackfellas, as, as truth-telling. You know, knowing what this the history of this nation uh, looks like in, in all of its shapes and forms, um, and um, you know the Uluru Statement from the Heart articulates that as a Makarata Commission um, being able to to kind of carry a, a nationwide truth telling process. So there is a, a a linkage there as you you um, you identify as your um, um, as I hear on the grapevine. Um, Ron, that your good friend uh, Professor Peter O'Mara, when um, I asked him in a um, in a in a health sense what can be done to 
reduce some of the um, the way that um, Aboriginal patients are treated differently or the prejudices they come up against with when they um, actually deal with the health system. He, he gave um, three examples of what can be done. Um, stop racism, stop racism and stop racism. And I think that's something that could apply to this entire report. Well, that's the, the, this is precisely the point that we focused through this report on uh, structural barriers. Um, and we can look at any number of systems. Um, your example there, and Pete's a good mate of mine, we've we walked this road together for many years um, and seen it in, in, in all shapes and forms. But, um, you know, that was particularly in health, but we can apply the same uh, in education, in justice, in, in many different areas. Well, the report itself, if um, if you want to avail yourself of it, is obviously great for policymakers and uh, decision makers and, and senior bureaucrats and the like, but it's really accessible. One of the great things about reports like this, and it's gotten better so much over time, is how digestible they make the information now. And um, there are a number of fact sheets available. There are media releases. There's actually a, uh, a video of Ron himself uh, telling us why the report is important. Um, very good lighting, Ron. You look great. Um, I think... Um, yeah, well, thanks, um, Daniel, but <laughs> listeners might want to go straight to the report. <laughs> <laughs> so pc.gov.au if you want to get a copy of the report. It's um, front and centre on, on the page. Uh, before I let you go, Rom, uh, what, are you, what are your plans over uh, over Christmas? It's been one hell of a year. Yeah, it has. And, look, I take my hat off, really, um, uh, to our mob, um, our not only our smarts, but our resilience and our ability just to, to do stuff that we know is important. Um, and this has kept, really, coronavirus in check for our people. Um, so just want to acknowledge that. Um, but really, just a bit of downtime. There's this report, but I've also, um, as a new commissioner to the commission and first Aboriginal commissioner, got thrown straight into a... a um, a piece of work, and that's the Indigenous Evaluation Strategy, so the strategies that's with government at the moment under consideration. Um, so, look, I'm just looking forward to catching my breath. And as I mentioned earlier, um, I've got two kids in Melbourne, um, uh, one in Sydney. I shouldn't forget about her as well. But, um, you know, you guys in Melbourne have really done the, the hard yards for the, the rest of the country. So I can't wait to head south Um into Victoria and um, and catch up with a few people there, including my my kids. Well, you've got a big 2021 um, ahead of you, Rom. So um, do rest up and thank you so much for your time. I'll get you back on the show some of the time to talk about uh, the up, up, that upcoming report. And um, in the meantime, look after yourself. Yeah, cheers, Daniel, and you, and you too. Um, all the best to to everyone over this um, this holiday break. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. To tonight's second guest, this past Sunday, the 6th of December, marked the 82nd anniversary of a remarkable piece of Australian history when William Cooper and the Australian Aborigines League heard of the Crystal Nacht in far-off Europe. That was the Night of the Crystals. In Germany, he organised a delegation of Indigenous men and women to march to the German consulate in Melbourne and presented them with a letter condemning the Jewish persecution. 
The consulate, the consulate at the time refused to accept the letter, but by their action, William Cooper, his followers and contemporaries had made their point and were on record as being one of the first people to stand in solidarity with the persecuted Jews of Europe. A remarkable act of courage and dignity. So on Sunday, the German government, through Felix Klein, the Commissioner for Jewish Life in Germany and the Fight Against Anti-Semitism, issued an historic apology via video link on behalf of the Chancellor Angela Merkel's government. Um, to receive the, the apology on behalf of, of her people was Dr Lois Peeler. Now, this is um, one of the extraordinary guests that we have on the show that if I was to mention or go through the entire list of experience and achievements, there would be actually no time left to speak to Annie Lois. So I'll do a <laughs> summation. Um, there's much to say. She was born on Kamraganja. Uh, she started off as a, as a model. Actually, I was actually thinking of uh, becoming a male model at one point, um, but um, decided a life of clerkism would be good for me instead. Um, she was an original member of the Sapphires, she has dedicated her entire life to the improvement of outcomes um, for her people, carry on the work of the likes of her uncle, Sir Doug Nichols. She has done that in various roles, such as being the manager of Aboriginal Employment Unit for the Victorian Public Service Board. She also headed Aboriginal Tourism Australia for over 10 years. And Lois has been the chairperson of the Department of Justice and Regulations Regional Aboriginal Justice Advisory Committee. In the Eastern Region, she's been a member of the Victorian Government's Aboriginal Justice Forum, chairperson of the Eastern Local Aboriginal Education Consultative Group, and along with her sister, was involved in the establishment of Warrora College, where she's now the executive director of that college. She was awarded an honorary doctorate by RMIT in 2017, and that same year she was awarded Victorian Senior Australian of the Year. She's a member of the Order of Australia, and she's on the line now. Annie Lois, welcome to the mission. Thank you, Daniel. Um, let's um, start. Yeah, just just want to make a yeah. Sorry, yeah, go on. I wasn't born on Kamraganja, but my oh, family right. came from there. I grew right. up on Kamraganja, sort of going backwards and forwards. But I was born at Marupna. Ah, Marupna, like so many of my relatives, um, including my yeah. uh, my, my <laughs> grandfather, right. my uncles, a whole bunch of other scallywags. Yep. You've turned out all right, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's start with um, with William Cooper. It was 82 years ago on Sunday that that historical march from his humble abode in Footscray, which also doubled as the HQ for the Australian Aborigines League, um, started. Do you know how the plight of the Jewish people of Europe even came upon his radar or, or the league's radar? Um, yes, well, look, I think uh, the... Uh Australian Aborigines League, of course, were meeting um, uh, quite frequently and with the aim of um, improving conditions for our mob. Mm. Um, but at the time, I think um, it was the, the uh, what happened on Crystal Night was uh, being made known through the media, and um, you know they, I guess, they felt a parallel with what was happening with uh, our people and how they were, you know, the persecution of our mob and, and the Jewish um, community over there in Europe. So I think that's what, um, what you know, motivated them to uh, make a, an official protest when no one else did, actually. 
Yeah, there's no record. Um, I double checked this today, and I've, I've I've studied this area for for a couple of years now, um, quite intently. And there have been claims that it was part of a broader movement in Australia, but there's actually no evidence that there was any other no. Um, um, no. Uh, instances like this, and especially around uh, the the Crystal Night protest. It was something that was um, totally and utterly unique. Uh, you mentioned there that um, you know the Aborigines advancement, uh, the Australian Aborigines League, um, saw parallels between the treatment of uh, the Jewish people in Europe and and uh, Aboriginal people here. How much of their act do you think was really shrewd politics in terms of drawing parallels and drawing attention to the plight of um, people here? Look, um, I, I think that there probably was um, a political uh, motivation as well, but there's, uh, you know, there's no denying that uh, the history of what happened to our people here in Australia, and you know, they, they could see, uh, you know, the the brutal treatment and the inhumanity um, of uh, another people. So that's where I think they grew, you know, they drew the parallels. But uh, obviously, it might have been as well the opportunity to to highlight, um, you know, the the position of uh, of our people and and draw that parallel, you know. Yeah, extremely, uh, obviously, an extremely humanitarian act, um, an act of uh, solace um, and a, an act of compassion, but also at the same same time very politically smart. I mean, these the march itself actually ended up in the Argus paper, and it was always a struggle and a difficult yeah. difficulty to get any issues relating to Aboriginal people in in the mainstream paper. So um, uh, very clever politics as well as an act of um, absolute humanity. Um, many of the goals that... Um, oh, look, you know, uh, look uh, can I just... I, I'd like to just comment on that. Sure. Because um, Uncle William Cooper, um, he was uh, you know, a prolific uh, letter writer and um, bringing... You know, trying to get uh, government to uh, to take action on the many things that uh, he brought uh, to government's attention, and even you know the um, uh, he gathered uh, thousands of names for a petition to go to the king, which never left the country. But I think that you know because he was used to using, um, he was quite you know well very adept. That uh, you know, as writing letters and so forth, so possibly seize the opportunity to uh, highlight that as well as you know. I mean, there was definitely um, the humanity. Uh, you know, he always called for civil rights and human rights, yes. and and that wasn't just for our um, immediate uh, family clans and and communities here. He was advocating for Aboriginal people across the country. And always, you know, um, advocating for these changes to be done in a, in a peaceful, non-violent way. And um, I'm very pleased yeah. to see that that's, that 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 legacy amongst that generation from that generation of Aboriginal advocates still exists today. Because um, um, there are various protests happening around the Black Lives Matter movement that are respectful, but strong and peaceful. So uh, we we stand on the shoulders of giants there. That's right. Yeah. Now, one thing um, I wanted to, to pick your brain about Aunt, was um, Uncle William Cooper set himself a number of goals that were never met in his lifetime. And he, um, towards the end of his life, he wrote how frustrated he was at times about 
um, you know, the lack of achievement in some of those areas. But what can we here in 2020 learn, young and old, from his example of from his tireless advocacy for his people? What 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 are some of the key takeaways that we can, uh, you know, t- attach ourselves to as we try and make change in this country? Um, you know, what I, I think of uh, what Uncle Cooper and members of the Australian Aborigines League did was lay the platform for us, you know, who are mm. uh, coming in, following in their footsteps. And now it was about, you know, respect and being respectful, having respectful relationships and so forth. And um, so, you know, um, uh, from what they were advocating for was equal rights, of course, um, uh, education, opportunity, and all of these things. So now that we have them, we should be making, you know, making sure that we um, take that opportunity to seize those opportunities that they never had. My auntie Hillis, auntie Hillis Briggs, was a mm. member of the Australian Aborigines League, and she had. She set up a school under a bow shed on the banks of the river after they walked off from Kumraganja. So each one of those people that were involved had a passion and, you know, the right to do things for the um, for the greater good. So, yes. you know, I think, you know, I think that's a very strong message for us to follow, a, a good um, good learning for us, you know, to follow that. I think I think the key phrase you used there aren't, was was the greater good. You know, um, how can you yeah. you know sacrifice potentially some of the things that you were doing, or actually involved in your life and, and create a, a more meaningful existence by uh, you know yeah. doing things for for the greater good. And that's something that you've done your entire life as well. Um, you, like you said, you were born in Maroota, but you spent a lot of time at um, Camera over the years. Uh, many of the giants yeah. that we associate with that place had um, come and gone probably before um, you spent a lot of time there. What sense did you get growing up yeah. in and around Kamragunja in terms of the um, the act the activism that it, that drove so many from that people um, drove so many people from that mission to become the leaders that they they ultimately were. Oh my goodness, um, you know. It's about everybody that I knew was involved in, in activism and, as I said, you know, working for uh, improved conditions for for our families. And, um, you know, we went back frequently um, after because my family was involved in the walk-off and we settled on the flats in, in the route. Now, that's how come we were over there. Um, were you there when, you, were you there when the Queen drove past? Um, yeah, when they put up the Hessian, the Hessian bags to hide the uh, Dash's paddock, <laughs> <laughs> they were screening um, the place where our people lived on the on the uh, town dump, uh, and they didn't want um, the Queen to see that, so they put up Hessian bags along there so to, to block her view. Uh, amazing, um, amazing. But anyway, you know. <laughs> so going back to Kamraganja, uh, and when you look at the, uh, the leaders of our people who came from there, the political uh, activists, you know, and, uh, I mean, that, that was, you know, Uncle Cooper and um, Uncle William Cooper and Uncle Doug Nichols and Uncle Jack Patton and 
uh, Uncle um, Bill Onis and, you know, many, many, Auntie Marge Tucker, that was my mum's sister. But, um, you know, uh, so my my grandmother was Yarmouk and she went to a school at uh, Maloga there and uh, Grandpa James was a teacher. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, so me. I think the education... Yeah, I think the education was wonderful, and that's I think that's the legacy of Grandpa James, because it was a, a consistent education where the children had the, the opportunity to to learn and progress, and rather than having people come and go, as quite often happened, and and people who who weren't actually teachers or really didn't care, um, and I think that's one of the things that we we can say we can point to Grandpa James and say. Thank you, because we we had some wonderful um, scholars and you know uh, leaders come come through that school. Yeah, um, I, th- I think one of the things about um, about Grandpa James um, from from you know the things that I've learned over the years is that he didn't just merely teach the the people of Maloga and then Cumbergunja to to read and write. He also taught people how to work within the system to, to, to better themselves and to actually advocate yeah. for themselves. So I think that's um, that's yeah. um, a defining thing that um, that has come through the Yorta Yorta people and um, the people of Maloga and um, uh, Kamra. Um, one of the things I wanted to speak to you about, I watched your amazing um, oration, the Dungala Kaila oration, which is on YouTube. Um, it's called The Invincible Spirit Defining the Future. And one of the things that you mentioned in that um, oration was that there was this old book called From Maloga, The Memoirs of an Aboriginal Woman, and it was released back in uh, the, the 30s. I went and downloaded it from the State Library of Victoria website today. It's readily available and it's free. Okay. It makes for amazing reading. Who, who was that Aboriginal woman? Yeah. That's my grandmother, Teresa Clements, and um, her, um, she was known as Yarmuk, and mm-hmm. she was known, you know, Auntie Pris, and all of all of the old old women from that time, and they uh, they all Auntie Sarah Cooper, who was um, Uncle William Cooper's wife, so they all kind of came from that same era. And my nanny um, was she remembered when. Um, uh, Daniel Matthews came around with the big horse and dray and picked up all the kids from yeah. the riverbanks uh, at Yulupna, where we came from. Uh, that's our clan um, country, and took them to Maloga. And so, you know, that was the start of people being put onto the missions. And then after the mission, of course, became the Aboriginal Reserve, Kamaganja. Yeah, it's actually a, a, an account of uh, first contact, really. Um, it's, a, yes. it's an account yes. of someone who had the memory of uh, traditional life and they were, and was there at the transition point between um, uh, the traditional way of life and, and the colonial way of life. So, if you want to, if you want yes. to um, uh, download it, just go to the State Library of Victoria website and, and search for "From Old Maloga." The Memoirs of an Aboriginal Woman by Teresa Clements. It's um, a fascinating insight into uh, how people like her got us to where we are today. Um, now, before I let you go, Arnie Lowe. Let me Peter. say. Uh, yeah, sure. Wait a minute. I want to say something, Dave. Go for it. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's just me. I'm saying I, um, I was blessed to um, have had, um, you know, uh, Nanny live with us 
So she taught us language. She taught us culture. She taught us all of those values that we hold on to now. So, you know, um, that was another thing that's, uh, that, you know, we can be very uh, grateful for in my family that we knew that and she was always able to talk to us about her experiences and tell us about life on the mission. And, you know, when they couldn't talk language and, and they'd be whipped or had their rations withheld, my nana got a lot of uh, whippings mm. because she kept talking. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was from? something of interest. <laughs> mm. um. <laughs> Um, That's right. Now, before I let you go, um, you know, 2020 has been a very, very challenging year for everyone. But what's it been like for you at uh, at Warra as the um, executive director of Warra College? Um, How have the staff and students um, coped throughout this year? Look, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, changes and, you know, uh, we were following, obviously, the... uh, Chief Health Officer's uh, directions and, you know, we'd start a term and then they had to, you know, close it down and all of this sort of thing. And what I have to say is that the uh, the kids that were there um, were able to cope and adapted very well to the very restricted uh, environment that we were operating in. Um, and I have to acknowledge uh, both the, the students and the families and my staff who uh, were have to had to deliver, especially the teaching staff and the boarding staff when they had boarders, um, they had to adapt to this very rigid uh, COVID-safe environment, you know. And so mm. we've all come through. The girls went home today, so, you know, we're all breathing uh, a big sigh of relief. <laughs> so today's um, actually a really big day for you. to next year. Yeah, yeah. We went, uh, the girls went home because we weren't sure that whether or not they'd have to go into quarantine. Yeah, uh, right. When they go back to their communities, which they've had to do, you know, 14 days in quarantine. But um, because all of the, uh, it's all, the restrictions are lifted now, so they're, they're all back home, thank goodness. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, well done for, for getting them through. They're, they're kids from um, all parts of Australia, but some particularly remote communities as well, I understand. So, um, you know, thank you for looking that's after right. them and thank you for um, getting them back there on country. It's um, quite an achievement, yeah. as has been uh, your life. Um, one quick question before I let you go. Um, Sapphire's movie, accurate? Pretty well. Um, I, you know, I mean, they took artistic licence and some things would sit in there. You know, Mama would have whipped us for that, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but you know, uh, they did pretty well, I think. And um, the, uh, I think what I like about the movie Sapphires is that people, it touches on um, real history, but it doesn't dwell on it. So people can leave. Uh, having knowledge of, you know, of our story, and it was quite uplifting. Well, fantastic. Um, look, if you want to see um, something else worth watching, I would um, direct you to YouTube and to uh, the Dungala Kaela oration, the Invincible Spirit Defining the Future oration by Arnie Lois Peeler. It's something well worth watching. You will learn something and you will be enriched by it, as I hope you have been this evening by um, having Arnie Lois on, on the radio. Uh, Arnie Lois, thank you so much for your time this evening and um, take care over the Christmas New Year's break.
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>